This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. Now, here at The Art of Charm, we may not have all the answers, but we certainly have a lot of the questions. Today on Fan Mail Friday, the idea is that those questions, they come from you. You email us at friday at theartofcharm.com, and we do our best to dispense responsible-ish advice. Uh, answers, whatever, good old-fashioned discussion, admonishment, tough love, horseplay, etc. I hate starting shows with, gee, what'd you do this weekend? So I'm not going to start with that, but how about... The sexual harassment stuff that's been happening, and don't worry, if you're sick of hearing about this, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I they started this Me Too campaign, right, somewhere on social media, and now all of the gals that have experienced harassment are supposed to say Me Too, and at first I was like, oh, this is going to be so silly, you know, it's going to be like, oh, one time a guy talked to me on the train and I was freaked out. It's so much worse. So the campaign is working because I am now painfully aware <laughs> of how terrible men are. Oh, my God. The creepy stuff that guys do is beyond. And and look, let's go into this assuming that some of the things we see online are other. Some of it is exaggerated. Most of it is not. And a lot of it is from people that I trust that I think this person for sure isn't getting harassed. She's tough. She's smart. She's ballsy. Like those are the people that actually have some of the most shocking stories. My friend uh, who works here at The Art of Charm, not Kim Seltzer, but another Kim who does some of our fieldwork stuff with us and was one of the original AOC coaches from like 2007, she wrote a post in our private Facebook group on our family page of not just stuff guys yelled at her that was wildly inappropriate, I mean, survivable, but rude is and gross, but like waiting in line at a concert and feel somebody bumping up against her and then realizing the bumping was rhythmic and then turning around to see some dude with his dick out like rubbing on her that's gnarly who are these people seriously and the reason that i probably thought this me too campaign was going to be overblown or not a big deal is because i think i'd like to think is because i would never do any of this stuff so i assumed okay well you know a few people are gonna have these crazy stories and obviously there's tons of people who've had sexual assault, but that's, I don't think this is about that. It's like, it's about harassment. And I just, I am just shocked. So the campaign is working really well because me and a lot of my friends are just floored by some of the stuff that guys do. One, another one from the same Kim, she was at a, an old job, obviously not the one here at the Art of Charm. She walks in the office after the boss called her in, he locks the door and then throws on a porno. Like, th- so basically, instead of whipping it out in the line at the concert, he sort of, I don't know what you call like, he did the media version of that. It's just like, hmm, if I throw in this porno and I lock the door. Jackpot! <laughs> I mean, what are you guys thinking is going to have, like, dot, 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 this is going to work? Yep. I mean, what the hell? If you're 17, it might, but not when you're an adult. That's a guy who's watched way too much porn. Yeah, definitely. Who thinks that, oh, this is realistically something that's going to, I just can't believe it. So... The Me Too campaign is effective. That's what's been sort of bombarding my feed. And I, I, I think it's interesting because the stories that people have are outright bananas. One, and I won't mention this other person's name because they're sort of a well-known figure in the internet world. He posted something like this really braggy post. I once was harassed as a man on the job and it was terrible. So now I know how women feel. And, and the first comment was, don't hijack this and make this about you, which I approve of. The second comment was uh, was amazing. This woman wrote this really long story about how she was actually harassed at this guy's event, and she reported it to him, and he didn't do anything. And she's like, look, I'm not even mad at you. I just want to hear about your response. I scrolled down 200-plus comments. Dude never responded. Vanished. Weak. So, weak, right? So his whole thing was... Oh, I'm going to brag about how good of a person I am. Oh, I'm such a really, I'm such an understanding, empathetic guy. And then it was like, actually, this happened at your event. And he's like, oh, crap. Because his whole post was about turning it into something that was going to make him look good. Totally failed. And that, to me, also embodied some of the problem here. Because there are a lot of threads online where guys say things like, oh, I don't understand this Me Too campaign because... 
now women just tell me everything is creepy. And it's like, well, that's not true. I mean, what? It, give us an example. And then he proceeds to tell us this insanely creepy thing that he did, had no idea that it was weird. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I've gotten out of this is guys are dense. They don't understand what they're doing. And they're making other people feel uncomfortable. And mm. this this is really kind of, you know, just putting a shining a light on the fact that you are probably doing this and you don't even know it. Yeah, but I, I and I want to I want to be careful here because I don't want people to think I can't start a conversation with a woman at Starbucks because I might yeah. be harassing her. But that is also the problem of the campaign is it, it creates the slippery slope where it's like, it does. where do where does, you know, polite conversation begin, joking begin and harassment begin? I, I mean, I hate that that women have to say, please leave me alone, but it should, it's because it should never get that far. If that ever happens, that should be it. Uh, if someone is ignoring you, then that should be it. I know that guys might not pick up, and people in general might not pick up on some of these signals. However, some of this stuff is well beyond that. Like, I, I don't think there's anybody that needs to go, now, now there, Timmy, you can't pull out your penis in a concert line and put it on that nice girl's butt. That's criminal behavior. Yeah, that's a given. And so the idea that there's guys that say like, oh, well, you know, you can't do anything these days. It just seems like it also seems like a weird defense. Look, I get the slippery slope thing and we can discuss this more at length another time. But I also think that it's a weird, lame defense mechanism that guys have where they go, no, I guess I can't even talk to women because everything's harassment. No, you're just being a freaking weirdo and you're doing it on purpose because you don't really like women. Look, let's call a spade a spade. No, I get that part. The problem with these hashtag campaigns in my book is that it is ill-defined. So is this about harassment or is this about abuse or is this, you know, because everybody is hijacking it for their own different version of it. That's true. And this is where these Internet memes really like get my goat. You know, it, normally we would just change the color of our icon to show support and you know solidarity with a group. This is people coming out against a certain action, but nobody really has defined what the action is. You know what, though? Then, then just set the bar at the lowest one. So rape, obviously. Abuse, obviously. Harassment, okay. That might tear somewhere lower-ish, maybe, but it doesn't have to. So if that in your mind is a tier lower than those two things, just include it in there. I know there's some people out there, men and women, who would use this time to create attention for themselves where they really don't need to. That's just normal human nature. So I, I understand, but I still think that my, I guess my point was this campaign is working because it's getting women to go, actually, this thing happened. I, there are a lot of people that say, oh, well, you know, I don't know any of my friends don't harass women. And it's really easy to say, so it must not happen that much. Or sure, you're walking down in this crazy bad neighborhood and people are catcalling you. But, you know, you live in Troy, Michigan. It's fine up here. And it's like, no, that's where my boss locked me in his office and turned on a porn. Just because he didn't yell at me from a construction site doesn't make the same thing. And that was, for me, kind of shocking because I know lots of men, and most of them are great, and I have a problem imagining them doing these bad things. But here's here's the truth. If this is so widespread, then guys that you know that are really nice people are doing this crap too. Probability. Pure probability. Even if we are in the midst of some sort of crazy, everything is so soft and snowflakey, and oh my gosh, what does the world ever become? It kind of still doesn't matter because the amount of real stories that are beyond the pale for everyone are still coming out as a result of this. So it's not creating more victims or making people go, oh, gee, when Jordan said hello to me this morning, I guess that was harassment. There, there's still stuff that men and women have seen that we have, and I'm guilty of this too, looking back in my younger days, where we have just let it go and gone, oh, boys will be boys, or oh, it's fine, you know. It's locker room talk. Yeah, that's locker room talker. Oh, well, she's actually a slut, so who cares? I mean, we've all done that in our college days. That's a long time ago for me, but it seemed totally fine back then. But it still had just a terrible effect on the women that we were doing this to. And it never occurred to me that people would still act like that. You know, I thought everybody grew out of it. Obviously not. Concert guy with your dick in your hand. Shame on you. Go to jail. All right. Anyway, we got some <laughs> fan mail, and I feel like we could... Maybe address some of that instead. Hey, AOC. I hate awkward greetings. How do I know when it's about to happen and how can I nip it in the bud before it escalates? Sincerely, don't hug me, bro. 
Yeah, I don't. I'm with you on that. Sometimes I just have awkward greetings where I'm like, "Oh crap, I don't want to. I don't want to do that." Uh, all right, we're hugging now, and I kind of got over it. But uh, my friend Antonio over at Real Men Real Style, he is uh, a great blogger. He used to be like a Marine, then a tailor. Now he has a style blog. He did a really good article. We'll link to this in the show notes. How to deal with uncomfortable greetings, hugs, kisses, and sweaty handshakes. And he talks about a lot of really interesting ways to do this. First of all, you've got to decide what you are comfortable with. So if someone wants to greet you with a handshake, you know, or a hug, or if it's men and women, maybe there's a kiss, or maybe you're European and there's a kiss, it doesn't matter. You have to decide sort of what you're willing to deal with so it doesn't catch you by surprise. That way, if you're not sure you're good with a hug, deciding in the moment is just, it's a little too late. When someone wants to greet you with a handshake, usually they'll angle one shoulder towards you They'll put out a single arm once they get close. When someone wants to hug, they'll approach you with their arms wide open and their torso facing you. For a cheek kiss, someone will usually greet you face first. And so that's the way that I use this. And also, I use his second tip, which is initiate the greeting yourself. So if someone reaches their hand out, I'll reach out my arms and I'll go, nope, we're hugging, it's happening, accept it, you know, or something funny like that. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Unless it's uh, a woman that I may be speaking of harassment, haven't met before because I don't know what their preferences are and I don't know if they're really conservative. I, I have no idea. So I'll often just shake hands at first and then I'll hug goodbye when I get a better feeling for them. But I'll, I'll initiate the greeting myself. And so you get these weird trip ups when someone like, they, they hold their hand out, and then you hold your fist out, and then you decide, oh, we're handshaking, and they're like, oh, no, I was going to fist bump you now, and then you're like, oh, screw it, and then you you know, you know don't know what's happening. If you hold your frame, you go, okay, I'm hugging. Then if they hold out their hand or they do the fist bump, it doesn't matter. You're just going in for it. They'll eventually come and meet. They'll sort of match you, right? But if you're trying to match them and they're trying to match you, that's when you end up with uh, fist bump, handshake, hug, bro hug, half thing. Oh, what are we doing <laughs> now? I don't even know what happened there. That sounds like when you and I actually first met because you were big in the bro shake, you know, doing the multiple. I still do the bro shake. Exactly. I was not, I was not really versed in the bro shake, so we had... I think for the first two years that we knew each other, we had very awkward handshakes. Oh, I know what you're Remember talking about. That? I Yeah, I used to do that to, this is so lame, but I used to do that, this is like seven years ago, so everybody knows. I used to do that as kind of an experiment to see how people would handle that, because nobody knew what I was going to do. It was like, handshake, then you do this thing where then your fists are touching, and then you do like a high five, and then you do like a backward smack. Nobody knows what I was going to do, so I, I, I counted, and some people handled that really well. They would go, I have no idea what you're doing right now, and it would be like, they kind of took the power out of that one, and other people would try to play along, and they couldn't. And they, they set themselves on a lower status rung by looking kind of lame. And other people would be like, I'm a nerd. I don't know what that is. And I just, I was sort of running an experiment with that. That was actually maybe not mean, but interesting social experiment that was designed to push people off a little bit. But yeah, there is a lot of times where I don't know what's going on. When I, when I said goodbye to Charlemagne the God after interviewing him, I gave him a hug and he's like, all right, whatever we do. Cause he was definitely <laughs> expecting me to like fist bump, bro hug. And I was like, nope, you're getting a two armed hug. And he's just like, he's a hip hop <laughs> kind of hip hop dude, right? On FM yeah. radio. So he's like, all right, whatever. Like he just was oh, like, shit, okay. my squad's still looking. They better not be looking. Okay. I hope you nobody saw that. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. It was just like, and I, I've never felt so white in my whole life. I was <laughs> just like, oh, I'm giving you a big hug. And he's like, oh, okay. All right, that's enough of that. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I felt like crap for like a couple of years. I'm like like trying to watch YouTube videos on how to handshake right, and you broke me, man. And broke then, you down. But then one day we got in the car and we were saying goodbye, and I gave you the most perfect handshake, and you looked at me and you're like, hmm. And I felt like yep. I, got, I got the Jordan seal of approval with my final handshake. There you go. You YouTubed it. That's funny. Yep. I, I love that. The end of this article, though, is, is, is true. Be sensitive to others. Make sure you're not the one making people uncomfortable. Whoops. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. But we'll link to this article in the show notes from realmenrealstyle.com. It's, uh, it's fun. It's a good article. It's a very quick read. Gives you a little bit of protocol and what to do in each of these situations. All right. Next up. Hi, Jordan. How can my network make me money if I'm not an entrepreneur? I'm not currently in a position to take business opportunities from people in my network. Sure, I can get job offers, but what if I'm not planning to do that? Or what about otherwise? Suggestions are most welcome. Signed, Big Circle, Little Cash. So I think what Big Circle, Little Cash is saying or asking here is, why are you teaching all this networking stuff if I'm not trying to be an entrepreneur? 
I work at a regular job. That was the rest of this letter. I cut it down. Um, I know we cut it down a lot. And the reason I'm teaching this networking stuff and that we're teaching it here in our social capital class uh, at the Art of Charm, at Elite Human Dynamics Boot Camp in L.A., is because you just never know what's going to happen. You don't know where your job and your career is leading. You have no clue whether or not you want to be an entrepreneur or not at some point in your life. You don't know what's going to go on inside your industry. You don't know what's going to go on inside your company. You don't know if you're in a position to take business opportunities from people in your network. It just hasn't happened yet. So the first thing is you never know. The second thing, and I give this during my networking keynote talk like I gave at Google, your network is directly proportional to your level of opportunity, flexibility, and prosperity. And what I mean by that is you're only stuck in a job if you have no other job offers, opportunity. You might be able to do a different project at work, or you might be able to work on a different team, or you might be able to relocate, or you might be able to work in a different area, flexibility. That all comes from networking and opportunities inside your company. Prosperity, if you're an entrepreneur or not, you're going to find there's a lot of different types of opportunities you can meet somebody who can manage money for you, or you can manage your own money better. You can find business opportunities. I know a lot of wealthy people where it sen- essentially what happened was they made friends with the right people. Those people started companies. They wanted seed investments. Those people said, sure, this sounds like a great idea. They threw in a few thousand dollars and turned it into a few million. And I went, oh my gosh, how did you find out about Uber in t- 2009 or whatever? I don't know, 2003. 11 and they went oh you know i was hanging out up here and i would go to these events and that so-and-so was there and then dot 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 early stage investor in uber and now they've generational wealth for the rest of their life and the rest of their grandkids lives if they don't screw it up and that's impressive and uh also i've got a really good apropos example here I'm in a group of cryptocurrency investors. If you don't know what cryptocurrency is, I talk about it here and there. I don't want to get into a huge thing with it, but I was getting interested in this. A friend of mine told me about it pretty early. I didn't listen to him because I'm a dumbass. And uh, and I thought Bitcoin, you know, I thought a lot of the same thing a lot of you are thinking right now. And, and so he showed me how he was making a bunch of money and we would hang out and another friend would show me and another friend would show me and I go, all right, I'm going to bet what I can afford to lose. So I threw in some money and I made a little bit and then I lost a little bit. Then I made a little bit and I thought, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. I threw some feelers out there and I found out that there are people in my network that have very good connections I'm in a group with them. They're all quite well off, I'll put it that way. And they vet and find, they have a whole they have a full-time group of people that do this. They vet and find opportunities in these groups, and what I do is I connect them with other people and I offer my own network as value, and they will invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in these deals and I will get a kickback from that because I don't I'll invest a little myself, but essentially I ended up with this really interesting opportunity where I leverage my network and I also am able to invest in such early stage projects that are often moonshots, some of which have already been quite profitable. And that would never have happened if I was just keeping my head down, doing my thing. And I used I used to be the biggest fan of just mind your own business, get your job done, and you'll be fine. And that I got from my father, and he's a really hard worker, but it's not that way anymore. You do have to be a hard worker, and you have to reach out and create opportunity and leverage opportunity. You cannot just be a hard worker anymore. It's not enough. And so that's why we're teaching you how to do this well, because otherwise networking and creating opportunity seems like smarmy sales crap. It seems like, oh, you know, I don't want to do this. I've got to go to these dumb events and be fake. It's not like that. So we're teaching you how to do it in ways that are authentic, that are effective, that can leverage technology, leverage your own network and your natural skills. Because if you ignore this, you're not immune to the consequences. You're really not. You're just being willfully ignorant of the secret game being played around you. And that's very, very dangerous. That's why I'm so bullish on connecting and creating networks and leveraging networks to gain opportunity. So that's why. That's why you're learning this stuff, big circle, little cash. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating 
Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. All right, Jason, next up. Hey, Jordan. You recently emceed the Thrive event in Las Vegas, which you've mentioned on a few Fan Mail Fridays now. What's involved? How do you do it? And what was the experience like? Now, we've been podcasting together for years, but this is a new venture for you, and I'm curious about how it works. Curiously yours, producer Jason. Oh, that's funny. I did not realize that you were allowed to write in Fan Mail Friday. Of course okay. I am. I am the producer. I can do whatever I want. So tell me about Thrive. All right, I will. So what happened was I got a call from my friend Cole, who runs Thrive, speaking of networks, and this is years ago, I guess, when I first got the call from uh, via mutual friend. They were like, hey, do you want to do this event. You can come and speak. I ended up doing a fireside chat. I ended up becoming friends with Colt. This year, this is the third year, they were like, hey, you spoke last year. The first year you didn't do much. Do you want to MC this year? And I thought, ugh, not really. It sounds terrible. You know, it's outside my comfort zone. It's going to be a ton of work. But I would say it's a great experience. You should volunteer for it because usually they have to pay MCs. It's easier than speaking because it's really short bites. It's a couple of minutes. And the way that I prepped it was you got to get through the resources, right? You got to get the speaker bios. You got to find out what the layout, sort of the event is going to be like, uh, the time schedule, who's going to be there. That's step one. And you get that from the organizer. They should be able to get all that stuff to you a few weeks in advance. Step two is panic because you're never going to be as good as the guy, you know, who you found on the internet. Um, and there is a guy that I found on the internet that did a really amazing job detailing what it was that he did to prepare. And this guy is on fire. He's incredible. Uh, and I took a lot of his advice. So there's resources. We'll link in the show notes. This guy is a great MC. Basically, the gist of these articles, and you should read them if you're going to MC an event, is what resources you need, what you're going to do, why, what your responsibilities are. I would say that you do need to get the speaker bios. You need the general schedule of the event. You can get that from the organizer. You don't need to memorize the bios. You don't want to just read the bios. You want to go over them, find out maybe a personal anecdote that goes with each person or how you found their work or, you know, even if even if you say, I hadn't heard of this guy before this event because I was born under a rock, but I started reading his book and oh my gosh, so interesting, dot, dot, dot. You can throw that in there. Always talk less than you think you need to. I find most MCs talk way too much and people are like, get on with it. Where's the next guy? That said... Also have at least 20 plus minutes of content ready, even if you need slides for it, because often speakers will not show up. They'll be late. You've, you'll you'll be up there about to introduce somebody and the teleprompter will say stall with like 10,000 exclamation points and then a one after that because they, they're just <laughs> trying to get your attention. And you'll never want to just read the bios. You've always got to have something there. And you don't want to be like, so how was, uh, how was the chicken during launch, everybody? Right. you got to have something of value for the audience lined up. Like I said, step two, panic, because you'll never be as good as the guy in the articles that we are linking up here. And think of some bits. So if you know you're going to emcee an event early enough, think of some bits. And what I mean by that are some stories. Um, you can ask the speakers if they want you to do or say anything special. Some of the bits that I did were things like, oh, I thought of this funny thing that happened at an event 10 years ago. Oh, I can kind of manufacture that, not with props and everything, but just something funny that happened organically. I, one time I was speaking and I forgot to change a clothes, and so I had to wear my speaking clothes the whole time at this event. And I got up there wearing my speaking gig clothes the second day of Thrive, and I said, now to the untrained eye, 
it might look like I'm wearing the same thing I wore yesterday. But to those of you who are paying attention, I have different socks on. And, you know, <laughs> someone's like, what about underwear? And I was like, no comment on the underwear. Right? So I threw that in there knowing, okay, if I've got to buy 30 seconds for them to switch out a mic or something, I'm just going to do that one. And by the way, here's, here's a tip for you next time. When they say, what about the underwear? You go, yes, go to MeUndies.com slash charm and get my underwear. There you go. See? Now I can write that in the bits for next year. This, a lot of the speakers will want you to do or say something special. A lot of them don't care. Maintain your composure until you go on. And remember to, like I said, talk less than you think. But uh, people are generally rooting for you to succeed, which is great. So that's something that I think you should pay attention to. But emceeing an event is really fun. It's kind of like going up, doing... 30 seconds of stand-up if you want, and if you don't want, oh well, it doesn't matter, you don't have to, and then a minute long, not even, of speaking, introducing somebody else, leaving the stage, going back and doing it again. So it's a great way to get over stage fright, because you don't have to go up there, give a huge presentation, worry about the AV, worry about the clicker, worry about are you projecting. You just get to go up, go away, go up, take it away. Go up, take it away. It was, by the end, I'm telling you, day one, I was like, oh my God, this is going to be so hard. Day two, I was like, okay, I'm getting the hang of this. Day three, I was rocking it. I just was <laughs> loving it. And I'm excited to do it next year. It's funny, day one, I went, why did I volunteer for this? Don't ever let me do this again, Jenny. Oh my God. Day two, she's like, what do you think? I'm like, uh, well, it's all right, but I don't think you know I'd ever do it again. It's a lot of work. Day three, I was like, I can't wait to do this again next year. This is so much fun. That's a fun learning curve to have over three days. It really is. And now I'm like, oh, I hope I'm the MC of Thrive Forever, which is kind of funny. I Because the first day, I thought, why the hell did I do this? How did I let Cole talk me into this? So it was a fun learning curve, fun event for me. Excited to do it next time. But yeah, we'll link to the MC training in the show notes here as well. And I think there's a lot in there that you packed in with that experience about learning anything and something that's outside your comfort zone where you like hyper pack this this skill into three days where you're just like, you know, you do it, you have a break, you do it, you have a break, you do it, you have a break. And by the end of that learning, you come out of it like, you know, confident that you can do it again. It's not like because if you'd have quit after the first day, if it was just a one day event, you'd have, you probably wouldn't have done it again. But since it was three days and you got past all of your blocks on doing it. I think that that's really useful to know because if somebody's trying to get past one of these things that they really don't want to do but know that it's good for them, I think there's a lot in what you just said that is that are really good takeaways for that. Yeah, it was it was fun for me, man. Like I said, first Cole told me, "Hey, this is right in your wheelhouse." And I said, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, me and Sonya his wife, this is right in your wheelhouse. You should totally do this. I don't know, man. Think about it. Please just think about it. All right, fine. So the next day he's like, are you going to do it? Are you going to MC Thrive? I thought, all right, fine. I'll do it. I love I love growth opportunities. I'm down. So I did it. I told Jen. She goes, oh, that'll be kind of fun, I guess. You know? And I was like, yeah, I guess. So I went from no to why did I do this to it's okay to this is freaking great. And that's a growth opportunity. And, and they, what was really interesting about that was they – saw in me that this was in my wheelhouse, and I didn't. And everyone listening is probably like, duh, I'm seeing an event? This is right in your wheelhouse. Jesus, you don't I... shut up, and you love right? talking into a microphone. Why would you not be good at this? <laughs> now I'm like, wait, I'm the center of attention, and then I get to leave without yeah. doing any real work, and then I get to be the center of attention again, and then I get to leave without doing any work. Yeah, rinse and repeat for three days. Yeah, Hello, that's exactly. like amazing. I can't, I, tailor-made for me, yep. frankly. All right. <laughs> All right, next up. Hey, guys, I wanted to ask if you have any recommendations for sustaining your voice after speaking for two-plus hours and or recovery. Signed, Vocally Fried Veronica. Wow, there's a lot of questions actually about me in this one. It's all about you, Jordan. It's all about me, as usual. So you go and you MC an event, and now you can't stop talking about yourself. The arrangement of questions is an accident, I promise. <laughs> this is something I do all the time. Every day that we record, I'm recording for at least two hours. You, today, it's like six. Maybe seven because we're jabber-jawing, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. Anyway, uh, I mean, I love doing it, so it's it's fun. But yeah, my voice is already starting to feel it because we've been talking for a few hours here today already. And the first thing I always do is I warm up. I do a regular vocal warm-up. In fact, we at some point, I should have my voice teacher make a worksheet 
but I've got a great voice teacher. We have a great voice teacher, by the way. That's right. I forgot you were working with her, too. Yeah, Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, so if anybody needs a referral to a voice teacher, it's not cheap, but it's absolutely worth it. Uh Uh-huh. We warm up. Uh, I don't warm up at the teacher every day, but I do a warm-up that she designed for me. I hydrate a ton. When I don't hydrate, it is night and day. I don't really notice because every time I'm home, which is where I'm working, I'm always hydrating and drinking a ton of tea. If I'm When I was at Thrive a couple weeks ago, I drank coffee and that was it or something like that, a couple cups of coffee in the morning. Bad idea. It was <laughs> awful. It was terrible. So you got to stay hydrated. Don't talk on the fry. And what that means is most of us, many of us, I should say, we talk a little bit like this. Jordan, and... what are you going to come and do fan mail Friday with me? Well, you're just <laughs> making it sound whiny, but a lot of people, especially- There was some fry well, in there. <laughs> there's a little bit of fry. A lot of people, young and old now, but mostly young, talk on the fry. And to exaggerate what it sounds like, it's like, you know, when you sort of push the the talk through your vocal cords. And some people find it annoying. I don't really care. The thing about it is it really hurts your vocal cords. It so does. I it's recommend so yeah, I recommend doing a YouTube search for vocal fry and you will see a lot of voice coaches talking about why you should not do it because down the line it really hurts your vocal cords. You're pulling them really tight to make them work instead of using your breath. So that's extremely bad for you. Obviously. The other thing is that's obvious. Take breaks. Most people won't think about that, but we started having to do that, right, right, Jason? We'd do a two hour session and we'd like, Oh, we have another show. Oh, okay. Now we gotta record ads. All right. Oh, now we gotta do Fan Mail Friday. If we did that when we we did that a couple of times without breaks and we were just dead and at the end it was yeah. like, Oh, my throat hurts, my voice hurts for the whole time. You cannot do that. You need to take fifteen, twenty minute breaks. We are not making phone calls. You're just relaxing, letting your vocal cords rest. Yep. Breathing is very important. And breathing is something you have to work on with a voice teacher. Of course, everybody breathes. That's why you're alive. You have to breathe right or you won't get enough air to put over the cords and you won't be able to project, which means you're going to have to tighten your vocal cords more to be heard, which means that you're going to work them more in the wrong way. It's kind of like not breathing during exercise. It's really bad, and it'll wear you out much faster. It, I I find that when I'm getting cranky, I'll have to do a voice check, and often I'm getting cranky because my voice needs rest. Yeah. Not because I'm really tired physically or my mind, I've been thinking about anything or there's anything wrong. A lot of times my voice hurts, and I don't even notice that it's my voice that's tired. Yeah. Also... If you really want a uh, a pro tip, get a producer because now that I've worked with Jordan for four plus years now, I can tell when he's getting rusty and say, "Hey, take a break." But you can listen to yourself too and have that that wherewithal to know it's like I've been talking like this for a long time and now I'm talking like this and I don't feel like doing it. And it like you can tell when you need a break, so you definitely have to have that. And my last tip is no dairy. It's at least an hour before you record. Don't put cream in your coffee. Don't have a piece of cheese. Don't have a glass of milk because that builds up phlegm and phlegm will cause problems. So definitely oh, stay yeah. away from dairy. It's it's really bad. You end up with a yeah. in the back here. Uh, it's terrible. And also, if you drink alcohol, if you know you've got a thing going the next day, don't drink any alcohol. Yeah, yeah I know. It dehydrates you, blah, blah, blah. That's not the only reason why. There's other reasons why, but I, I find just having that, it's probably mildly irritating to the inside of your mouth or something. It will take away several hours of your vocal stamina if you drink the night before, no matter how hydrated you are. Absolutely. Period. Yeah. So you got to be real careful. As somebody who likes the sauce, I can tell you that uh, you can wake up in the morning and you can barely breathe right. You can't, you have to, it take. it will take you an hour or two of just vocal exercises to get the cobwebs off to get back to normal. So do not drink the night before you have anything that's important that you have to speak at. Yeah. If you're in Vegas, that over-air-conditioned environment's really bad for you. And this isn't really for performers. This is for people who have to talk a lot in meetings. This is for teachers. This is not just for singers and professional broadcasters. So I hope that's clear because I don't want people going, oh, I just why did I waste my time listening to this? If you ever have to talk for more than half an hour, you will need these types of tips. If you're not used to it, your voice will be shot after 40, 40 45 minutes of talking and, pre- and presenting especially.
And I also encourage everybody to do some kind of voice training because it gives you more gravitas. It, when you're dealing with anybody, you're going to sound better. You're going to have a little bit more uh, diction. You're going to have the crispness, the clarity, and people will listen to you more. It really is night and day from when, like when I started this, I was all mush mouth. I'm like, hey, welcome to the charm. I'm, I'm, I'm producer Jason. Welcome to what I'm doing. And now I have that crispness, that clearness, and I can talk with a little bit of authority because only a little bit because I don't want to rain on Jordan's, you know, parade there because he's the right. man. That's right. <laughs> so, Egomania. Don't get don't step on my ego's toes, bro. Can't outshine the king, baby. Can't outshine right. the king. I know my place. So but it still I've just noticed when I talk to people on the street, people pay attention more when you're not mumbling and doing things like that. So like take all the tips here, but also just take some practice. Read your newspaper out loud in the morning. Read an read a book out loud for like twenty minutes. You do that, you know, a couple times a week. You will notice that you are speaking better because you can hear what you're doing over and over again. It really does help. All right, Jason. Next up, dear Jordan and Jason, I'm a 25 year old woman currently living in Lithuania. A little while ago, I decided to go to Australia to study, travel, and get to know the world a little. I didn't have a boyfriend at the time or any other commitments. So I thought, why not take advantage of the perfect time? However, recently, I met a guy on Tinder. Oh, damn. <laughs> yes, I believe the many stories about weddings and good things that happen to people. He was traveling and visiting Lithuania for a couple of days, so we met for a drink. Skipping the long bit, we quite liked each other, but he's from Germany, and I had my Australia plans. We carried on talking once he'd left. A few weeks later, I went on holiday with my mom, and he came along, too. Whoa. Yeah, moving hella fast. We had a lovely time, although I did feel it was a little rushed. And normally I like more time to get to know someone before I share a room and a bed with them. Yeah, with your mom there. Awkward. Awkward. Anyway. <laughs> He's a super nice guy, though. Sweet, romantic, soft and caring. A real gentleman. Considerate and all that. I think one could pretty much call him a perfect guy. Red flag. Whenever <laughs> anyone says that, I'm like, uh, what's going to happen? Also, very boyfriend material. One might even call him too nice. Not sure if you know what type of people I'm referring to. I think you just did, uh, Jordan. Yeah, <laughs> pretty sure that I do. Continue. The always positive, never angry, nothing is too much of a trouble. Whatever you ask for, they will do it for you kind of person. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I don't feel in love. Oh, well, that's the reason, but go on. Not sure if there's something wrong with me here. My mom says he's super nice. He cares about you so much. What is not to like? But that butterfly feeling is simply not there. The amazing feeling everybody is talking about is not happening for some reason. I feel upset with myself, thinking that it's just me being silly, and maybe I'm looking for something I will never find. Perfection does not exist, and I know that, and I'm not looking for that. I cannot change the way I feel, though. I like him. He's very sweet, but still not sure I'm attracted to him in a romantic kind of way. I'm thinking more along the lines of, eh, I might fall in love with him over time. Mm. I'm pretty sure he's in love with me already, and that seems very quick to me. We hardly even know each other. I'm going to Germany this weekend to see him and see what his life is like and get to know him a little bit more. He's really keen for me to come and stay with him in Germany and leave my Australian plans behind. But I just think I might regret it if I drop everything. And it doesn't matter how nice he is to me. You can't help your heart, right? So my question is, when you like someone, do you really feel it and know for sure? Or is there something wrong with me? Do you think some people need more time to fall in love than others? And do you think I should carry on with my goals of moving to Australia for two years and let things fall into place by themselves? Just a side note, I am not spoiled and really am not looking for a perfectly built man with a six pack with millions in the bank and the brain of a genius with a successful business. I just want to feel that feeling to be sure. Would really appreciate your views on this as I'm confused with this whole love thing. Thanks. No butterfly girl. So this is an interesting question. It's funny she mentioned she's not spoiled. I wasn't thinking that at all, but apparently she's thinking that. And I think that's some of the danger here. She's thinking, well, I don't really feel butterflies, a.k.a. there's no chemistry at all. And so she's thinking, well, maybe I'm being spoiled by thinking that I need that. And here's the problem. And this is controversial. It sounds like you're in a good relationship, 
but it sounds like you're not in love. Those are two very, very different things, and you kind of need both of them at certain times. You're thinking, maybe I'll fall in love over time. That could happen. Also, the, the, the way that it usually works, though, is you're in love at first, and then you develop a really nice relationship. So in my opinion, it might help if you had both, because if you fall in love originally and you've got that chemistry and then you develop a good relationship, that chemistry might still be there even if it's not in the foreground. That said, if you have a good relationship but there's no chemistry, in my experience and that of a lot of people that we've coached here and a lot of people that I've seen come through Art of Charm, it's unlikely to then develop on its own. It doesn't mean you won't have a great relationship. You could very well get married to somebody. If this was an arranged marriage situation, you might be in for a great life together. However, if it's important to you to have chemistry, and it sounds like it is, it's unlikely to develop over time. It also seems to me that you're looking at this with a scarcity mindset, right? You've got this Australian plan. It sounds really exciting. You've got your whole life ahead of you at age 25. Why are you worried about whether or not you should pick this one guy? That's what I worry about. That's yeah. what I wonder about here, right? She's young. She's got a long time, yeah. and she's got all this life experience she wants to get. I think you will resent him if you end up in a relationship that's kind of boring, but maybe a good relationship, there's no chemistry, and you didn't do your plan to go live in Australia for a year. I think that you might really regret that. I think so, too. And it's funny that you mentioned the arranged marriage thing, because I was thinking the same thing. It's like if she walked into an arranged marriage and had that scenario, that's a jackpot. But this isn't an arranged marriage. She's got her life to lead and she's got plans to go to Australia and see the world. And at 25, I think it's too young to just say, I met a nice guy. I'm not I'm going to scrap everything and just go with this one, which does come back to your scarcity mindset. And I think she really needs to go see the world and get out there and, you know, just see everything before you make a decision. And if that guy's still there when you come back, so be it. If not, mm -hmm. so be it. Yeah, exactly. The world's a big place, you know? Definitely. Have fun. I think she's getting some old world advice from her mom, too, which is it's fine. It's not terrible advice, but it sounds like mom is thinking, this is a guy who lives in Europe. He's smart, educated, nice, and likes you. You should just lock it down. That makes sense for Lithuania, nineteen yep. seventy-five. <laughs> I was going right? to say that's some old school Lithuania thinking right there, but yeah, yeah, it's not anymore. It's twenty seventeen. So exactly, at your age, your mom was very likely graduate. Actually, your mom probably had kids already, right? Lithuania, nineteen seventy something. So there's or or early eighties even, depending on how if you're her first kid or or not. So there's a lot of thinking here that might not match yours and you don't have to match it. I really think you're going to regret staying with this person that you don't feel whirlwind for. If you wrote in and you said, I'm super in love with this guy. I'm in a great relationship, but I really don't want to leave my Australia plans. I would still probably recommend that you stay with your Australian plans. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're, you know, and you're now you're on the fence though going, I don't really know. I'm not really sure. I don't really feel this way. Should I leave my Australia plans? For me, it's an overwhelming no. But at the end of the day, you're the only one who can really make that decision. Yeah, it seems like a no brainer. Go to Australia. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Agreed. Awesome. So before we wrap here, I want to bring across what happened when I interviewed Roger Stone. My interview with Roger Stone was essentially a case study in confirmation bias. And I, man, I'm still trudging through the crap that happened during the aftermath of the, which we're currently experiencing of this interview. So a few weeks ago, I interviewed Roger Stone. If you haven't heard it, you can go and listen. It's in the feed. I knew it would be a controversial episode. Given Stone's outsized and unsettling role in American politics, I expected our audience to have a wide range of opinions on the interview. Most of it, I imagined, would actually be quite critical. After all, Stone is one of the key people responsible for the tenor and the controversy of the 2016 presidential election, and he continues to embody a certain kind of power and relationship to disinformation that makes our political system so complicated, divisive, and frankly, ugly. Now, uh, one thing I had mentioned right after this episode, and I think this is even inside the episode in the extras, I said, people are going to cry because I had someone on the show they may dislike, and I didn't care. I said, we're not here to debate politics. Lots of people don't like Roger Stone. In fact, we can call this episode Everyone Hates Roger Stone. And that was the title of the episode. We did call it that. 
Not because we wanted to tell you all how to feel, but because we already knew that so many of you already felt that way. And more importantly, because Stone already knows how you feel, and he's fine with it. In fact, the antipathy Stone ignites is literally a part of his playbook, Stone's Rules. He is a lifelong student of emotional manipulation and political skullduggery, and he has built an insanely successful career weaponizing people's feelings to influence lawmakers and to win elections. And that's why I wanted him on the show. The Art of Charm podcast is not a political program or an editorial rant. I'm not a journalist or an academic. I might have some journalistic bones here, but at the end of the day, I'm not trying to report the news. What I am is a student of human nature and success who's obsessed with interviewing interesting, talented, highly effective, and often controversial people. Politics and morality aside, Stone is undoubtedly one of those figures. So how could we explore the psychology of success and not talk to him? How could we pass up the chance to talk to the guy who architected one of the most dramatic and unlikely wins in American history? And how could we say that we have a lot of the right questions and then refuse to ask them of the people who have some of the important answers? So as soon as the interview posted, my inbox and Twitter feed were a timpani of clamoring voices, some of the most passionate responses to an episode I've ever had. I read and responded to almost every single one. I was especially interested in the response to his episode because the reply said a lot about human psychology and about the state of our discourse these days. Now, the first type of response was disappointment and rage. There were loads of these replies, but they all came down to one basic argument. And that is because Stone is an unprincipled and hateful manipulator, it was a mistake to interview him on the show. A handful of people went a step further and said that they decided to unsubscribe from the podcast in response. And in many cases, people in this camp, by their own admission, didn't actually listen to the episode at all. They just saw the title and immediately objected. The most eloquent criticism of the episode actually came from a listener who believed that interviewing a guy like Stone meant that we were giving him a microphone he did not deserve. More than that, this listener felt that Stone reflected poorly on us and that by inviting him onto the show, we were somehow complicit in what he has done. And he said, he trades on your reputation when you bring him onto your podcast. He steals your legitimacy and your credibility when you share your platform with him. He should be deprived of oxygen until he is forgotten, not given time and room to preen in the reflection of others. What's funny is I actually got similar responses from the other side of the political spectrum when I interviewed Bill Nye. So let that sink in. So in this listener's view, it's society's job to, and I quote, shun anyone who has contributed to Trump's rise to power and the creation of such a dangerous threat to our democracy. We must make it so uncomfortable for these types of people to appear in public that they never want to show their faces in society again. Part of that process must include shunning those like the art of charm and you who give Trump, Stone and their associates the opportunity to continue indulging in their narcissism. Now, this is a perspective I can appreciate, especially given how divisive and personal the last election was. I'm going to talk about my response to this argument in a minute, but in the meantime, I just want to recognize that this is a position a vocal minority shared, which is that interviewing Stone was tantamount to helping him spread his message, that inviting a controversial figure onto the show said something about us, and that the media, including us, should stay away from talking to people that we, as a society, according to this listener, generally agree are bad and should be shunned. And then there was another group of listeners. The other type of response we got was patience and curiosity. Interestingly, a lot of people in this group also hated Stone, but their eagerness to understand the man dwarfed any political and ethical objections. Now, these arguments were a bit more varied, and they basically came down to this. Stone might not be a good person, but he's a useful character to study. And the fact that he's so reviled these days is a sign that we should, at the very least, try to figure out what he does and how he does it. Now, the responses on Twitter focused on what listeners could learn from Stone, not what they felt about him. Some listeners advocated separating out the two. One guy said, I listened with an open mind, hoping my image of him was wrong. It's not. He's vile. But I appreciate that you present varied thoughts. Another listener pointed out the historical value of the episode and said, why wouldn't you study the winners even if they're bad, which is subjective? You need to know what they did to prevent it or use it for good. And others praised the interview while condemning the subject, 
which is A-plus non-political, no-nonsense interview with a disturbed and disturbing man. I thought that had a nice ring to it. That's a great one. And still others pointed out that uh, talking to people with different beliefs is actually the best way to fight the filter bubbles of modern life. I quote, it's always a good idea to hear perspectives of people you don't necessarily agree with. Keeps your mind open and out of your echo chamber. Thanks, Jordan. There was, of course, a third and silent response, which was no response at all. And to this group, by far the largest, Stone was just one more guest, perhaps more controversial than most, but one of many interesting people we've interviewed to shed light on a certain way of operating. Now, maybe those people did actually hate him. Maybe they liked him. Maybe they didn't feel one way or another, but they didn't respond and most likely did not unsubscribe either, which is a good reminder that Twitter tends to attract more extreme positions, and that doesn't necessarily reflect a large swathe of opinions. Now, I find this fascinating. I genuinely loved reading the replies and responding to all the listeners in both camps, and I thank you for that. In a way, it was like Stone was teaching me and us how to process controversial information through our listener emails here. The responses told me that, character and politics aside, he has an uncanny grasp of human nature and that it was the right decision to have him on the show. So the Roger Stone response confirmed that the title of our episode was pretty apt. People really do hate Roger Stone. A lot of people, of course, also love him. What really struck me, though, was that people who hated the episode could choose to have two different responses. To get angry that we gave a hate monger, manipulator, propagandist a platform, or to be curious how this hate monger or manipulator propagandist has managed to transform our entire system. Obviously, I fall into the second category. The reason is not that I think Roger Stone is good or right as a human being, but that he's interesting and meaningful for us to study. I don't think he necessarily deserves a platform. I simply want to use my platform to better understand him. I can hold my political opinions such as they are and still be curious about him. In fact, it's because I hold those opinions that I'm curious. And that's the point. Judgment and curiosity are totally compatible. As long as we prioritize informational value over moral judgment, openness over censorship, learning more over knowing enough. To me, that is true liberalism in the broadest and most classical sense of the term. Openness to new behavior or opinions and a commitment to broadening our general knowledge and experience. That's my stance and is the reason we host our show. There are also obvious benefits to taking that stance. People who understand their opponent's arguments are better equipped to understand and defend their own. Whether you're developing a competitive strategy, negotiating a deal, or navigating conflict with a spouse, being fluent in the perspective of the other side of the table will always make you more effective. As Charlie Munger once said, I never allow myself to have an opinion on anything that I don't know the other side's argument better than they do. There's a reason the most successful people, who are among the most principled as well, are obsessed with listening to ideas that are radically different from their own. Finally, the criticism of the interview made me reflect on some fundamental beliefs I had about the role and philosophy of our show. The listener I quoted earlier was right. Interviewing Stone did say something about us, but it wasn't what the listener thought it said. It said that we're committed to studying successful people of all stripes, even when those people hold distasteful views, even when we don't agree with them. It said that we should learn... It said that we could learn from anyone who's left a mark on this world. It said that we were listening. I'm proud of that. And while I can appreciate that Stone's critics don't like giving him another microphone, shunning him from the media is not the right answer. Incidentally, it's also not going to make him or his ideas go away, by the way. In fact, I'd argue that giving him a mic or asking him the right questions is one of the best ways for people to arrive at an informed opinion on their own. We weren't giving Stone a platform. We were giving the conversation a platform. Listeners can draw their own conclusions and hopefully better ones for it. That is, if we can just step outside ourselves and consider another point of view. In a recent New Yorker article, Elizabeth Colbert did a terrific job of exploring confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency to embrace information that supports our beliefs and reject information that actually contradicts them. This so-called serious design flaw in the human mind leads to all sorts of problems, from an irrational confidence in our own expertise to our intractable attachment to political opinions. Interestingly, Colbert also explains that our susceptibility to confirmation bias is an evolutionarily selective 
selected trait that allows us to live in collaborative groups. Reason, she writes, is not designed to solve problems and analyze information, as we often like to think, but to allow us to cooperate with our fellow human beings. Confirmation bias, then, helps us collaborate. It makes us good at spotting problems with other people's beliefs, while preventing us from questioning the ones we and our tribe already hold dear. Since those beliefs are the glue of our society, just look at the way people identify themselves to one another when it comes to politics, including how they feel about guys like Roger Stone, we tend to double down on our existing beliefs while dismissing evidence about new ones. From an evolutionary standpoint, the cost of changing our minds is just too high. We might lose our sense of self, our ability to be part of our community, our standing in our tribe. The filter bubbles of social media only reinforce the beliefs we hold, the beliefs we actually feel we must hold, and our confirmation bias grows stronger. Which is a good reminder that beating confirmation bias is hard. I got frustrated at times with the vitriol about the Stone episode, but asking people to open their minds, to even just listen, meant asking them to go against their most fundamental programming. I've been there too. And I probably still hold on to views that deserve revisiting. In fact, you could say that my commitment to openness and curiosity is itself a belief I'm unwilling to give up. But the difference is that true liberalism allows for multiple beliefs to enter the conversation and protects against this weaponized identification with any one. I believe that we can appreciate multiple beliefs and that we should try to understand them even and especially when we disagree with them. How else can we be sure we hold the right beliefs? Now, my views on Roger Stone and controversial figures like him are complex. I think he's dangerous and fascinating, worrisome and useful, immoral and important. I can believe all of those things at once because they're all true. My stance is this. The moment I decide to support him or marginalize him, hate him or love him, I've already lost. I genuinely believe we have an intellectual and moral duty to open ourselves up as much as possible to perspectives, techniques, and worldviews that are different from our own, even when those conversations are ugly, difficult, or uncomfortable. That's our job. It's how we become more thoughtful, more effective, and better equipped to deal with this fascinating and complicated world. But maybe even that is a belief I need to revisit. In the meantime, it's a helpful one to hold. I hope you all enjoyed that. Don't forget, you can email us friday at theartofcharm.com to get your questions answered on the air. I keep everyone anonymous. You can either make up your own funny name or we can do it. And do we have a documentary for these guys, Jason? Uh, yes, we do. It's called Generation Iron 2. This actually came from a listener who sent it in, and I'm like, it's a bodybuilding documentary. We're not bodybuilders. Have you seen us? We're podcasters. We have faces and bodies for radio. But then I popped it in on Netflix, and turns out I... I was giving it a test, and it was an hour and a half in before I decided, oh, I actually like this. I think I'll finish it. So it is the story of uh, basically the modern bodybuilder, the guys who are at the top of their game nowadays. And it's kind of a sad story because these guys are like out of time almost because nobody really cares that much about bodybuilding anymore. So like watching these guys fall prey to social media and the upcomers is kind of it's a, it's a really interesting story, and by the end of it, I was just like, hmm, I, I kind of feel bad for these guys, but, you know, the guys at the top of the, the top of the heap are leveraging their talent to do something else, which is what they need to do, but there are some guys that are just stuck in the old days, just says, if I'm bigger and better, then I'm going to win, you know, it's, it, it's a very interesting documentary. So Generation Iron 2, that's on Netflix, and by the way, if you got feedback for the show, we're fans of strong opinions loosely held. We love to argue like we're right. Of course, we also like to listen like we're wrong, so don't be shy to hit us up over here. A link to the show notes for this episode can be found at theartofcharm.com slash FMF for Fan Mail Friday, 138, 138. Quick shout out to Justin and Nikki Scherer. They own the Scherer Design Group in Plymouth, Michigan. I actually found out about the show because I went to the University of Michigan Law School where Nikki works and they own their design group and now they're all listening to the podcast. So thanks for that. Thanks for being a fan of the show. Are you in a strange land like Michigan listening to our familiar voices? If so, hit me up. We'd love to shout you out. I'd love to hear from you either way. I'm on Twitter at The Art of Charm and Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. Those are great ways to engage with the show. And Jason, you're on you're on social media. Yep. I'm on the Twitter at JPDef, that's J-P-D-E-F, and you can check out my other podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks, at GOG.show. 
All right, and don't forget about the Art of Charm Challenge. Text AOC, that's AOC, to the number 38470. You can also go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. We're taking a lot of the things from the show, creating drills and exercises, helping you apply these things to create better relationships, personal and professional relationships, becoming a better networker, increasing your personal social capital, your charisma. It's for both guys and gals, and it's free, so check that out at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text AOC to the number 38470. More from AOC at theartofcharm.com, including info on our live program in LA, Elite Human Dynamics. That we run every single week down in LA. If you really want to dig into this stuff and work on your AOC skills with us as your coaches, that's at theartofcharm.com slash bootcamp. We do accept cryptocurrency for products and programs. Now stay charming, get out there and connect, and leave everyone better than you found them. 